Well, this week while I was um, doing some researching, I came across an ancient artifact I just had to share with you guys. Uh, some of you will have no idea what this ancient artifact is because it dates all the way back to the Dark Ages. Are you ready? This, my friends, is called an atlas. And um, historians date this back to a um, day and age way back called the 80s and 90s. And, um, and, and some of you look really confused like you've never seen one of these. It's okay, let me explain. So um, someone would actually use this um, on a trip and they would, they would actually find out where they are on the map. And then they would, listen, this is crazy. They would actually choose which roads they're going to take to get to where they want to go. Crazy. Like they'd actually have to read this thing and know which roads they're on to get where they're going. Crazy. Now, some of you probably, to your own shame, still use this. In fact, um, Joe Bartimus told me that the way he finds his way to church every morning is through an atlas. But I wasn't supposed to share that, so don't tell him I said that. But the reason why I share that is because atlases obviously work different than nowadays Google Maps or an application on your phone that allows you to navigate to where you're going or a GPS. Because while you could chart a course on your atlas to where you want to go, you were not able to see the things that would deter you from getting to where you want to go, say um, construction or detours or traffic. In other words, the, the atlas did not give you the ability to see what hindrances were on the path or the journey you were taking. The reason why I share this is because this morning we will look at a story in which Jesus converses with a woman who's on a journey. Her journey is one in which she is seeking to know Jesus more deeply than she currently does. And as Jesus converses with her in Luke chapter 10, he reveals three hindrances, three hindrances that people like this woman and like you and I face when wanting to know Jesus more deeply. Now, I'm willing to bet that in, the, in a room of this size, there are people here who would say, yeah, I'd like to know Jesus better than I do today. Maybe a goal for next year for you in the back of your mind is I want to know Jesus better. Well, friends, if that is you, Jesus will reveal this morning three hindrances that await you as you go on that journey. To find these hindrances, we begin in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. The text says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. As Jesus is entering a village like he would do, his disciples are with him, and they are all welcomed by a woman named Martha that graciously welcomes them into her home. So Jesus and his disciples come into Martha's home, and as they do, Luke points our attention towards another person in their presence. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha's sister, Mary, is also in attendance at this home, 
And Luke does not tell us how Mary got into her house, but chances are that Martha and Mary were talking at one point and decided that they would host Jesus and his disciples together in Martha's home. And so, as him and his disciples come into Martha's home, there is Mary, and the scene is set. Martha welcomes Jesus and the disciples into her home with Mary, nothing out of the ordinary until we read in verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, the reason this is um, out of the ordinary is because this would have been something that was not a uh, cultural custom. In second century Judaism, for a woman to be sitting with men listening to a rabbi, namely Jesus, teaching the Old Testament law would have been seen by many as um, weird and by most wrong. For the main fact that men were the ones as seen as who were studious. The men were the ones who were supposed to be learned, and the women were supposed to make domestic preparations to create space for the men to learn and to listen. But that is not what Mary is doing. Notice she's sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. Mary is sitting, listening to every word Jesus is saying, and she's hanging on every word. There's no doubt that in this moment, Jesus has Mary's full attention. And what's awesome about this is Jesus, living in the second century, does not rebuke Mary for sitting and listening to his teaching. There's an important lesson here, and it's that Jesus values Mary. As Mary is sitting and listening, Jesus does not rebuke her. Rather, he approves of her behavior and commends her actions by continuing to teach. And she continues to soak up every word he speaks. But while all of this is going on, we, the readers, must ask a question. What's Martha doing? Verse 40, but Martha was distracted. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word distracted in this way, I quote, having one's thoughts or attention drawn away, unable to concentrate or give attention to something. Now, now step back with me and, and understand what's happening here. This is incredible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who the Bible says holds all things together, the one who hung every star in the sky, who established the mountains in their place, who made you and me from the dust, is now standing in Martha's living room. And Martha's distracted. She can't pay any attention to him. She has her thoughts drawn away from this one named Jesus. And this, my friends, is the first hindrance people face who are wanting to know Jesus. Distraction. There's no doubt that all of us have felt this tension. Surely there's not one person here today that has not felt the nagging pull of distraction. 
For distraction is that which constantly assaults us when we want to concentrate particularly on God. You wake up in the morning after having made a plan to sit down and read your Bible unhurried. And as you sit down and begin to fix your heart and mind on the Word of God, you begin to read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, I wonder if so-and-so ever replied to that email. Get out your phone, check the email, I got to get back to it, okay. In the beginning, it's the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, okay. He was in the beginning with, phone vibrates, oh, wow, a text, and it has a lot of emojis, which means I must read it, it must be really important. Begin to check your text, and, and, and sooner or later, you quit because you can't seem to overcome all of the, of the distractions. Can you relate with that? After all, we live in a day and age which... Baylor professor Alan Jacobs has called the age of distraction. While there have always been distractions, perhaps there have never been as many distractions as in our day and age. In his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, Nicholas Carr explains when he writes, the Internet's interactivity gives us powerful new tools for finding information expressing ourselves, and conversing with others. But it also turns us into lab rats, constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social or intellectual nourishment. The internet seems to be chipping away at our capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm on online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Think about how the internet has evolved over the last 20 years. It's pretty incredible if you take a step back and think about it. I mean, in 1995, laptops were created. Incredible. I mean, we could carry our computers with us. I mean, they weigh 80 pounds, but still, like, we, we could carry it with us. In 1996, email was first becoming a thing. Guys, this blew our minds. You mean I can type something on my screen and my buddy over there can read it? Crazy. Now, now let this sink in. Freshmen in college, some of you are about to get really depressed. Freshmen in college this year were born in 1998. Let that sink in for a moment. The same year Google was created. Before 1998, nobody used the word Google. If you were hanging out at someone's house and they said, hey, I wonder about such and such, and you said, I don't know, I'll Google it, they're never inviting you over. Like, they'll be like, we don't know what Google is, but we don't do that here. <laughs> Text messaging started in 1998. Facebook in 2004, YouTube in 2005, Twitter in 2006, Instagram in 2010, Snapchat in 2011, and the word selfie wasn't even invented until 2013. 
And the iPhone is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. It was created in 2007. Which meant that now we could carry around the World Wide Web in our pockets. And now it's reported that 75% of Americans feel, quote, panicked when they don't have their phones. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. You walk out of the house, you're like, ha! Ah! You know? Now you ask, well, what, Brad, why do you bring this up? For this reason. Because endless streams of information can be tapped into at any moment, it has invaded every moment. Whether we want to admit it or not, the internet has literally changed the way we think such that when we sit down to commune with God, we feel like lab rats poked and prodded with new distractions. Friends, distractions hinder us from knowing Jesus more than we do. But notice the particular distraction that plagued Martha. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Martha traded the enjoyment of Jesus for the execution of task. And can I tell you that often we are no different? We get so busy working for Jesus that we forget Jesus. We become like a man walking past the Niagara Falls with his head down, choosing to not look at the beauty around him. We become such people that fixate on service to the king instead of enjoyment of him. Martha was distracted with much serving. But as she sees Mary sitting and not helping her, she comes to Jesus and says in verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, if you are a child here this morning, I need your help, okay? I need you to raise your hand really high. So if you're a kid here, raise your hand really high. I want to see where you're at. Can we just give these guys a round of applause? We are so thankful you're here with us. Thanks for being here. Now, you can put your hands down. Um, I want to ask you a question. We need, we're going to preach together. This is going to be great. Um, have you ever had a time when uh, your parents asked you to do something, and um, they asked you and maybe your brother or sister to do it together, and, um, and you, you just love hanging out with your brother and sister doing tasks that your parents give you, I know. Believe it or not, I used to be a kid. I'm retired now, but I used to be one. <laughs> and, um, and so you go to do that task with your brothers or sisters, and um, as you're, you're working hard, you're doing your thing, just like you were told, and you look over, and your brother or sister are playing around. You know what I'm talking about? And, um, yeah. <laughs> Amen, brother. And, um, and, and how does that make you feel? It makes you feel mad, right? Because mom and dad asked us both to do something, and I'm over here working my tail off, and he or she's over there messing around. And so, um, you know what? You know what I used to do as a kid? Way back, 
I used to go to my mom and dad and say, hey, mom and dad, I'm over here being faithful. I'm working really hard. I'm really obedient. I'm really righteous. I'm really good. I'm really good looking. I'm really athletic. All a whole host of things I could say that are all true. And then I would say, but my brother over there, he's not working. You need to get on to him. Know what I'm talking about? <laughs> thank you. And um, thank you, guys. You're so helpful. And um, Martha's doing the same thing. I mean, she's like, Mary and I both were going to have Jesus' as disciples over, and I thought we were both under the understanding that we're both going to be hospitable, you know, together. And um, now she's sitting down. And I'm over here working my fanny off, and, every, and she's just sitting over there listening to Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm doing what you told me to do, but look at her. You need to discipline her. This isn't uncommon in the Gospels. In fact, we find oftentimes when people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you rebuke so-and-so? He ends up rebuking them. And so here in verse 41, the Lord answers, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And here we find the second hindrance we face when wanting to know Jesus more deeply, and it is this, anxiety. Anxiety. For most of us, the only time you will know that there is something wrong with your car is when it shows visible problems. You don't know the battery is dying until one morning you get in the car, put the key in the ignition, turn it, and it clicks. The battery's dead. Or you don't know the engine is dying until one day on your way home from work, the car breaks down. The engine's dead. Visible effects that help you to see that there's an invisible problem. But much in the same way, anxiety is an invisible problem that shows visible effects. Jesus, being the Son of God, very well could have peered down the corridors of Martha's heart and seen very clearly that she was anxious. But isn't it true that oftentimes anxiety can be easily perceived? I found in my own life that my dear wife Clarissa often knows when I am anxious before I know I'm anxious. My anxiety takes many forms, frantic living, easily irritated, quiet, and etc. But being the wise woman she is, she never comes out and says, Brad, stop being anxious. Instead, she asked me questions that caused me to check my heart. Questions like, are you doing okay? Do you need to sleep? Or my favorite, do you need to eat something So Jesus sees Martha, perhaps her irritation with Mary, or perhaps her anger towards himself, and so he gently says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. What does it mean to be anxious? David Powelson, in his book, How Does Sanctification Work?, describes anxiety in this way. Anxiety feels like barbarians rioting in the streets of your mind in part because anxiety presumes a great distance between God and my present concerns. Anxiety puts a distance between myself and others. It is the opposite of loving people. 
It is the child of self-trust, over-concern for the opinions of others, desire to control outcomes, and love of ease, all of which erase God and make this my universe, not his. In other words, Martha was in the vain pursuit of trying to be God. Worrying about Mary not pulling her weight, worried about if her guests were served well, worrying about what Jesus might think of her if the house isn't all clean and tidy, yet all the while not enjoying Jesus' presence. Showing us that anxiety causes temporary madness, causing us to forget that God is with us, ready and willing to help us as we trust him step by step. But Jesus goes deeper and uncovers the fountain of her anxiety when he says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Where is Martha's anxiety coming from? From the third and final hindrance we face when wanting to know Jesus more deeply, and it is this, busyness. Busyness. Jesus is showing Martha that her frantic overwhelmed, anxious living is actually being fueled by her mind and life being consumed with many things. And many of us can relate. As one busy mom once said to me, on a normal day, my life feels like something between a perpetual summer camp and a three-ring circus. And yet there is a great danger lurking in living a life that is filled to the brim with many things. Author and pastor Kevin DeYoung in his book Crazy Busy writes, as Christians, our lives should be marked by joy, taste like joy, and be filled with the fullness of joy. Busyness attacks all of that. One study found that commuters experience greater levels of stress than fighter pilots and riot police. When our lives are frantic and frenzied, we are prone to anxiety, resentment, impatience, and irritability, all the while neglecting God. Then he says, busyness has killed more Christians than bullets. Yet in the light of the story, we must ask this question. What is busyness, and how does it keep us from knowing Jesus? In order to answer these questions, we must first understand that busyness isn't inherently bad. After all, Jesus was pretty busy himself, traveling from town to town, village to village, healing people, preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians in in 2 Thessalonians 3 that he toiled literally day and night for the sake of the gospel. In many respects, God calls us to be busy with him as he works in the world. But this is not the busyness Jesus is pointing out. The busyness Jesus is pointing out in Martha's life is the kind that is always looking ahead at the next thing, causing her to missing out on on enjoying his presence in the present. Here's how I would define it. Busyness is the habit of running toward the next while missing God in the now. Think about it. Martha was busy. She had a lot to do after all. The Son of God was coming over, and some of you freaked out when your family members came over this week. 
I mean, she had tasks to get done, food to make, floors to sweep, laundry to clean. And the danger, Jesus points out, is that when we are busy with many things, we can easily neglect the main thing, being Jesus himself. This is precisely the danger of busyness. We become so concentrated about what is coming next that we miss God in the now. Adele Calhoun, who wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines, writes about this when she wrote, we can get so busy doing urgent things and so preoccupied with what comes next that we don't experience the now. Afraid of being late, we rush from the past to the future. The present moment becomes a crack between what we did and what we have yet to do. It is virtually lost to us. But listen to these words. They're so good for my soul. We don't get to our futures any faster if we hurry. And we certainly don't become better people in haste. Then listen to this. More likely than not, the faster we go, the less we become. The danger of this is that we live a life so full of do that we never have any time to be with Jesus. So Jesus reminds Martha that in light of all she has to do, there is one thing she must do. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Surely Martha must have perked up at such an audacious statement. One thing is necessary. Look at all I have to do. What is this one thing? Verse 42, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's as if in this moment, Jesus sat Martha down in his living room, popped in a DVD recording of the last hour of his stay at her home, and said, Martha, watch this. Scene one stars Martha running around, stressed out about what needs to be done, worried about what others might think of her if she fails, busy with many things. Then scene two plays, starring Mary, There she is, sitting down at his feet, listening to his words, giving him her full attention, overflowing with joy. And Jesus turns to Martha and then says, Martha, did you see that? You've done a lot of good and noble things, but you have neglected the most important thing. Mary has chosen the good portion. So the question is this morning to you, I just ask as your friend, do you feel like Martha at all? Do you feel anxious? Are you easily distracted? Are you always busy? Jesus is reminding Martha and us of this simple truth. Listen, if you can take this, if we can live this out, 
We can overcome these hindrances and know Jesus more deeply today, this week, this month, next year than we've ever known him. Jesus is reminding Martha and us of this truth. Three words, ready? Jesus matters most. Jesus matters most. Say it with me, ready? Jesus matters most. This is the point he's making to busy, anxious, distracted Martha. Jesus matters most. Yes, life is full of things that matter, is it not? Full of things that matter. Friends matter. Your marriage matters. School matters. Your job matters. Church matters. Your ministries matter. Your small group matters. All of those things matter. But like Martha... These things can become all-consuming such that we forget what matters more than anything. This is why Jesus calls sitting at his feet the good portion. A better translation perhaps might be the better portion. It's better. What does this mean? It means that the presence of Jesus is better, more satisfying, more pleasurable, and more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. Now, now listen, we desperately need to be reminded of this because the world all week has been selling us a bag of lies. All week. The devil tempts us and tells us that there is joy and pleasure to be found outside of Jesus. He says things like, click on that website. Buy those clothes. Don't confess that sin. Neglect the Bible. Chase that next job promotion. You'll finally be happy. And on and on he goes. And what Jesus is saying is this, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Jesus is better than all of it, than all of that, more satisfying than all of it. And though the devil will tempt us to believe otherwise this week, we must remember the words of Thomas Watson. If there be enough in God to satisfy the angels, then sure there is enough to satisfy us. Oh, friends, Jesus is the better portion Can I just tell you, I have always regretted when I have neglected the presence of Jesus. But I have never regretted when I've sat at his feet and I've listened to his word. I've slowed down my spirit. I put it in park and I just listened. Lord, what do you have to say to me? I've never regretted that. But then Jesus gives one of the most precious promises in all of the Bible to Martha and to us. Verse 42. It says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What a precious promise. But here's the question. How does this promise help distracted, busy, anxious people like us? By calling us to acknowledge two things. First, this, there is nothing that we have that won't one day be taken from us. There's nothing in this life that can't be taken from you. 
Your job can be taken. Your house can be taken. Your car can be taken. Your money can be taken. Your spouse can be taken. Your children can be taken. And even your very life can and one day will be taken. And what distracted, anxious, busy people need to desperately acknowledge is this. We are not in control. And, and, and one of the vehicles God uses to deliver that truth to our hearts is suffering and pain. I am no fool. Some of you have suffered miserably this year. The Lord has taken some things from you and even right now is taking some things from you. And the lesson he is wanting you to know is this, that you are not in control of your life and you never were and you never will be. But this sovereign good God is. This good God is in control of everything. It should encourage us, but it should be a sober warning that when we begin to think that we control our lives, that everything depends on us, friends, that's a recipe for burnout. And what Jesus is calling us to acknowledge is this, there's nothing we have that won't one day be taken, but at the same exact time, the second thing he's calling us to acknowledge is this, Jesus can never be taken from you. Never. When Jesus bore our sin on the cross and took God's wrath in our place, he did more than justify us before God. He purchased for us the guarantee that Jesus will always be with us. Because Jesus bore God's wrath for us, he will now always be with us. Do you know what this means? It means that wherever you go, in whatever you do, and wherever you are, Jesus is there. When you get in the car to drive home today, he's there with you. When you go to school on Monday, he's there with you. When you go to work this week, he is with you. When you are dying of cancer and your body is rotting in a hospital bed, he's right there with you. Friends, Jesus bought not only our redemption, but also the access at any time to talk with him, to enjoy him, to listen to him, and to worship him. He bought that for you. And here's the thing, it will never be taken. Never. J.C. Ryle explains this further when he writes, the true Christian's possession shall never be taken from him. He alone of all mankind shall never be stripped of his inheritance. Kings must one day leave their palaces. Rich men must one day leave their money and lands. They only hold them till they die. But the poorest saint on earth has a treasure of which he will never be deprived. The grace of God and the presence of Christ are riches which no man can take from him. 
They will go with him to the grave when he dies, and they will rise with him in the resurrection morning, and will be, shall be his for all eternity. Oh, friends, busyness can't take Jesus away from us. Anxiety can't take Jesus away from us. Our sin can't take Jesus away from us. Cancer can't take Jesus away from us. The devil can't take Jesus away from us. Even death itself cannot take our risen Christ away from us. He's ours forever. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've been overwhelmed by distraction, by busyness, by anxiety, by suffering or some sort of circumstance in your life. Be encouraged by this. Jesus is here with you. He's with you right now. He's all around you calling all of us to abide in him, to talk to him, to enjoy him, and to worship him above every anxiety, above every task, and above every distraction, reminding us of these three simple life-changing words, Jesus matters most. So friends, you may be here today and you're going into a new season where there will be Christmas gatherings and Christmas parties more than you can even plan for. And on top of that, there will be a whole host of other things that are unexpected that will pop on your calendar and cause you to feel stressed out, busied, hurried. Can I just tell you, remind yourself of this, Jesus matters most. Do not neglect your soul, my friend. And can I tell you that while we are not merry and do not have the privilege of sitting 40 hours a week at Jesus' feet, we do have the privilege through the gospel to listen to him, to talk to him, to enjoy him in every moment. Whether you're at work, at home with the children, at home alone, wherever you are, Jesus is there willing and able and open and calling you to abide in him. So my friends, today let me leave you with this question. Starting now, starting right now, will you embrace him or will you just rush to the next thing? Starting right now, will you embrace Jesus or will you just rush to the next thing? There's a world full of busy people and yet we are called to sit at Jesus' feet and to abide in him. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. We confess that we are often anxious, that we are often busy, and that we are often distracted. We confess that we often neglect the better portion for lesser portions. 
And Father, hear our hearts as we cry out, we do not want to remain in that. Instead, we want to embrace this good news that because you died and rose again, we have access to you at every moment, that we can abide in you in every moment. We can enjoy you in every moment. Lord, would you help us to practice your presence starting even right now? Lord, you are here with us right here. For some of us, this is a call to repent, to turn from our way of living and to embrace Jesus in every moment. So, Lord, even as we sing this song, can we make it a prayer? Lord, would you help my life to be like that, that I would embrace Christ all around me. And as we sing the chorus and we we come to the bridge, Lord, would you help us to give thanks that you shed your blood so that for every moment we might embrace you. So, Lord, we want to embrace you in this moment. We want to cast off our cares upon your feet, and we want to embrace you in this moment, starting today. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.